You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 19 of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. This is one of those episodes where I get super nerdy with my guest, and today the topic is language, specifically cues. You might not know this about me, but as a very young child, I spoke four languages. I was born in Japan, and my mother spoke French to me, my father spoke Dutch to me, and they spoke English to each other. By the time we moved to Hawaii, which was around my fifth birthday, I had had enough, and I rebelled. I told everyone that I was only going to be speaking English from then on. Yeah, you can tell what kind of a kid I was from that story. Anyway, the foundation had been laid, and I have been fascinated by language my entire life, so I absolutely loved this conversation with Laurel Beaversdorf, and I hope you will too. Laurel is a yoga educator specializing in biomechanics, self-care, and yoga teaching pedagogy. She's an integrated yoga tune-up teacher and trainer, the creator of Body of Knowledge, anatomy and biomechanics workshop series, and a senior teacher and trainer at YogaWorks in New York City. Laurel is committed to raising the bar on the content and quality of yoga education, which you will hear more about in this episode in the interview. Anytime that we are stepping into the role of teacher, I think it's vital to be conscious of our use of language. At first, it can definitely be awkward to try on new ways of speaking and describing things. You might remember your first time in teacher training trying to cue somebody into a yoga pose and how weird that felt. However, as time goes on, the new language becomes automatic. So now, potentially, cueing people into yoga poses might feel incredibly easy and natural to you. As yoga teachers, though, it's really easy for us to slip into habitual ways of cueing without questioning whether or not the way we cue is truly serving our students or supporting our intention. I also believe that in order to be outstanding yoga teachers and also to use our teaching to fuel our personal growth, which is a big benefit, I think a side benefit of being a yoga teacher, We need to continually evaluate all the different aspects of our teaching and frequently experiment with new ways of engaging with our students. This episode will give you a ton of ideas for ways to do that around language and cueing. So let's get started. Laurel, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks, Mado. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about language in yoga classes and how yoga teachers can more skillfully use language to provide the experience that they were hoping to, that they were intending to. So I'd love to hear from you about a little bit about your journey of how you got interested in this topic and 
what your background is on it. Absolutely. So I have a BFA acting degree and I came to the great city of New York to be an actor and through studying acting, of course, I was memorizing lines and embodying the words and mindsets and lives of characters. Um, and so that requires a certain interest in language. I, I imagine for most actors, there's a, there's an inherent interest in language and how language can shape us even adopting someone else's words. Then I moved to New York City and took my hand at acting, got some really cool roles, mostly stage, and um, didn't love all of the table waiting that I had to do to pay rent. And so wanted to find another means of, of making money to pay rent and buy groceries that didn't involve table waiting. So um, a friend of my husband's now, uh, who was my boyfriend at the time, but now husband, uh, was teaching English to language learners in New York City, you know, people here to visit or to work who wanted to improve on their on their language skills. And so I started teaching at a school and um, got my, you know, ESL certification, which is English as a foreign language. And through, through that side job, I then suddenly had to study the language that I was teaching so that I would be able to teach it from, you know, the standpoint of grammar and vocabulary and pronunciation. And so that made me even more of a, an insider, so to speak, with regards to looking at language now, not from the standpoint of the emotional, psychological drive behind language usage, which you would tap into as an actor, but now maybe more from the mechanics standpoint and the context-dependent standpoint in which language is used, for example, you know, helping students understand that there's like many different ways to convey meaning and that many of those ways are heavily context dependent so that there would be like a way of expressing yourself that would be appropriate in this setting, but inappropriate in this setting type of a thing. I started to have to understand that, but then even just like the messed up grammar of English, like it's like really convoluted and interesting and hard to teach. Um, when you start to teach something, inevitably, you learn so much more about it because your students look to you to help them navigate their misunderstandings and confusions. So to really understand your students' misunderstandings and confusions, you have to understand um, what it is about the language that's difficult. And then how can you simplify it? How can you make it an accessible skill for them to, to, to learn? So after you know doing that for a couple of years, I happened to walk into a yoga studio on recommendation from a cast member and saw a friend from college working behind the desk. She's like, hey, we're hiring. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> Maybe I could get free yoga. So as my third side job, because <laughs> that's how it is when you're an actor in New York, I started uh, you know working as a receptionist behind the desk at Yoga Works, actually. And um, one thing led to another. and uh, however many years later, but like 12 years later, here I am, trainer for Yoga Works, 200-hour, 300-hour trainer. I, I lead um, many of my own workshops, including Body of Knowledge and, you know, other um, movement-related workshops, yoga tune-up workshops. I also teach yoga tune-up, yoga tune-up trainings. And I've really built a career there. And um, I come across a lot of teachers. I teach teachers. And I'm still teaching language. <laughs> it's 
still learning language. I'm still teaching language. I'm still looking very closely at language. Um, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a language person. I very much find the process of learning a language to be my inroad into understanding a variety of, of topics, including movement. So, yeah, so yeah, I, I love me. that because <laughs> it, it hadn't really occurred to me that in some ways, or teaching movement is another, almost another language, especially if you take anatomy, the anatomical language into consideration, then you definitely have, you know, you have multiple languages being used concurrently as you teach. Yeah, the language of anatomy, the language of, of Sanskrit, of yoga philosophy, the language of direction and action and body part, and the language of felt sense and uh, interoception, language around breath. You know, and something that stands out to me specifically with regards to teaching yoga is just how little of you, your students can actually see while you're teaching because of the different shapes and postures and movements they're that they're doing, but not going to be able to see you in order to really be able to see perhaps you demonstrating the posture, even the expression on your face. So there's a lot of verbal communication without nonverbal additional input. And so how you use your words, what words you choose, and then also how you vocalize is extremely important because that is maybe the the vast majority of the information that your students are even taking in. Yeah, I agree. What you say. I agree. And and then you get the fact that a lot of style, several styles of yoga and several teacher trainers, te- you know, emphasize not demonstrating every pose. They almost emphasize using verbal cues over over visual cues. And I have kind of, I've evolved my stance on that a little bit over the last eight years that I've been training teachers. I, I like to support teachers in finding their own path into how they teach best. So I don't have so many prescriptive, like, Hey, everybody should (laughs) teach, walk around, everybody should walk around and, and cue verbally. Instead, you know, for certain people, if I'm working with them one-on-one, I might say, Hey, for you, it looks to me like you're getting really stuck on your mat and it, it would be worth exploring. It would be worth getting up and trying this out and seeing what happens, what you can make of it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the same way. We're kindred spirits in that way, Mido. Oh, awesome. Well, I think several ways, Laurel. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the yeah. ways one of the ways I think about this podcast <laughs> is that there's a lot of conversation these days around standards in yoga teacher trainings and really the lack thereof. We all know that even though there are some there's an organization the Yoga Alliance who sets these minimum standards for what many yoga teacher trainings around the world um, will be teaching. And yet the way that different trainings interpret those standards and whether or not they even live up to them 
is really in question because there, there hasn't been any enforcement. Um, so, so people are getting vastly, uh, different experiences from different teacher trainings, which in some ways is wonderful. And at the same time, Mm -hmm. I have spoken to a lot of yoga teachers personally who felt, uh, disappointed by their teacher training and who felt unprepared, which is, you know, to some degree, everybody's going to feel unprepared after 200 hours, but there is a way, you know, (laughs) I do believe that we can, as a community, as an industry, as people who really care about what we do, we can elevate the, the standards, let's just say. So one of the ways that I envision this podcast is to fill in some of those gaps for people And I'd love to ask the people who come on the podcast what they would like to see more of in teacher trainings, what their priorities are. And I know for you, I know you have some that are not necessarily within the scope of this topic that we're dealing with today. So I'd love to hear all of your thoughts. And then if you like, you can start kind of taking that into the conversation around cues and languaging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I personally, through my experience as a trainer and also my experience as a, as a student in training have found that there is a little bit of a lack of time devoted and discussion devoted to uh, the topic of scope of practice and helping yoga teachers who are movement teachers essentially um, graduate with a clear understanding of what it is that they are qualified and should be expected to do and what it is that they are not qualified and should not therefore be expected to do. Um, I think that, you know, one of the main reasons that this is important, I feel is for ethical reasons. and. Um, I think that, you know, because of how yoga has been transmitted, really, from teacher to student over the years, this topic hasn't come under, you know, clear enough focus as it has, for example, in medical school, teaching school, where you literally, the viability of your career depends on you understanding your scope of practice. Um, or your ability to, to, to maintain your license. So the, I think first and foremost, that top, that topic of scope of practice and additionally um, trauma sensitivity as well as body positivity so that we can start to accommodate um, and create a welcoming environment for people of all different backgrounds and shapes and sizes yeah, those those two topics really revolve heavily around the way that we use language. So, for example, if a student comes up to you and asks you what they should do about the pain that they have in their groin, the way that you address that student's question is is going to rely heavily on and how you speak to the student about the problem and how you position yourself in relationship to it. Um, how much information um, allow them to assume you have. Um, not prescribing, not diagnosing, um, but but remaining helpful in the ways that you can be given your 
level of training and um, the resources that you have to refer them out to. Uh, additionally, with trauma sensitivity, body positivity, um, I myself would like to expose myself to more education in these areas, but understanding first and foremost that everybody's coming from a different background and that we can't fall prey to, I think, the mistake that a lot, a lot of a lot of us make, whether we realize it or not, as yoga teachers, which is to impose our subjective experiences on others and to assume that the experiences that we've had while they've propelled us toward this career of teaching yoga and wanting to share the gifts of yoga do not um, in any way necessarily represent the experiences of other people undergoing what seems to be the same process we did. I mean, their experience can be completely different and that's okay. I think that when we can become aware of why someone's experience might be a little different through, through like trauma sensitivity awareness um, building and, and, and also, you know, understanding like how language is powerful with regards to, to that and, and also around body positivity, body positivity and understanding kind of some of the, the language choices that we might use unconsciously that convey a sort of negative feeling or sentiment toward certain body types or the body in general. I think this is really important. I think it's important specifically if we want to help people out of a state of suffering and out of a state of pain. Um, language is an extremely powerful influencer of how people feel, how ultimately how they think about themselves. So. Absolutely. This um, just this past week, I was I participated in the Yoga Alliance listening tour. I don't. Are you at all mm-hmm. involved in their standards review, Laurel? I'm not. Okay, because the message that I got, and mostly the the format was of the CEO David Lispius listening to the, you know, soliciting feedback from the community. But I got some pretty clear messages from him about the Yoga Alliance um, priorities moving forward with standards review and trauma sensitivity and scope of practice were like two of the top priorities. Right. So that's, that's just a really, another interesting overlap, you know, how this does seem, this does seem to be kind of foaming to the surface a little bit, these topics. Yeah. And I think that ultimately what these topics revolve around is maybe a greater sense of enthusiasm for that, which we don't know, Mm. right. And the limits of what we can know as movement teachers, epistemology. So you know, looking at looking at the nature of, of knowledge and, and and understanding where we overstep with regards to advising, prescribing, diagnosing, or assuming someone's experience is a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. Or that they should be having an experience a certain way. So taking it to the inside the yoga studio or whatever yoga space people are teaching yoga in, I know that a lot of yoga teachers, you probably have the same experience, new yoga teachers, they always want to know what's the cue for that? How, how should I cue my students <laughs> in, in this pose? Um, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and, and kind of start diving into your, your presentation on the different ways that we can cue and why we might use different ways. 
Yeah, sure. So the question, what's the cue for that, is such an interesting question, isn't it? It's like, I would like to obtain the cue for that, please, so that I can own it and then use it and get the results that I want. <laughs> it's very, um, gosh, it's, it's, it's like magic bullet thinking, I think. But at the same time, I was the same way and I still kind of am. Like when I hear somebody phrase something well and it, and it resonates with me, I'm like, God, stealing that. That was so clear and um, illuminating. Totally. So what's the cue for that? I understand the mindset behind that question because uh, when you're new to anything, the overwhelm is great. The cognitive overload is a serious part of it. And so you really just want to have something that you can say something that you can do so that you can begin. And so having a cue for that is a place to start. <laughs> Ultimately, you want to have more than a cue for that, though. I think that's what we're talking about today. Exactly. You want several cues for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I've been thinking about it for a while. I actually kept a cue dictionary as a newer teacher. had a little notebook that I carried with me and scribbled furiously after class all the brilliant things my teacher said and categorized them according to pose and body part. And I basically memorized them and used them. I mean, that, as I explained to you, is part of my learning process. But um, I think that ultimately, you know, and we talked about this before we started actually recording, that, that the, we need to drop the imitation phase of language usage and allow language to come from a more organic place, from our own experience, but then also from our experience of observing other people's experiences and seeing the outcomes of, of, of language and, and what lands and what doesn't land, because what, what, what works for me might not work for anybody or just a few people, or maybe it works for a lot of people. So observation is a huge part of, of teaching. And um, it, it's like being in conversation with students when you're, when you're giving cues, movement cues, really to be aware of whether or not they're landing, whether or not the students seem to be responding to them, I think is a huge part of coming up with, with organic language. I love that. From, from experience. Not, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. is, that is such an important thing. I, I just want to like pause and even repeat it. Highlight. <laughs> Watching your underlines reaction to your cues, mm -hmm. to your instructions, that is, that's golden right there. And I, mm -hmm. I am just as guilty as anyone else of like, so, sometimes getting on an agenda boat, you know, like I want to get there. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it, it's, it needs to be a conscious choice, I think, for most of us to, to take the time to stop and watch. How did that work? Mm. How did that land? What did and it, it, a lot of times, yeah. A lot of times I was just, sorry, I interrupted. A lot of times it, it involves saying a lot less than what you're saying. Good point. <laughs> yeah, like saying a lot less. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that involves as a newer teacher getting comfortable with, with silence and not speaking. Even, or not even just as a newer teacher, place. right? As any any level yeah, teacher. Yeah, no, totally. As an American. <laughs> I feel like I'm constantly coaching myself to shut up more in class. And 
mm-hmm. you know, reaching that next level of being comfortable with silence. Like, I don't think I'm even close. I've been teaching for 13 years. I don't think I'm even close to my potential <laughs> on that front. Yeah, no. Isn't that exciting though? There's so much more to learn, right? There's so much more to get comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm the same way, Mado. I'm the same way. I like it. When in doubt, open your mouth and say something. That's sort of my MO. <laughs> right. And and we're what we're trying to train is when in doubt, shut up. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Watch. Stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So uh, over the years, you know, I kept a Q dictionary, but then I dropped the Q dictionary and started to come up with the language myself organically coming really not from me, but through me from all the exposure, the teachers that I had the privilege to practice with, and then all the the moving I had done over the years, really developing a a kinesthetic memory and a lexicon that sort of grew out of that. But I, I think that I have narrowed it down to like four types of cues that I'd like to talk about. Awesome. Um, Do you want me to tell you what they are? Absolutely. Two of them are heavily researched. They're called internal and external cues. And they're really pitted against each other in research to look at which are better. And the goal, purported goal in this research is performance. So athletic performance mainly. But I think we have to ask when we look at this research to understand the value of one kind of cue over the other, external versus internal, whether performance is the goal of yoga. And it can be, but I don't know that it is the only goal with regards to teaching movement in the, in the, in the kind of greater practice of yoga. So internal external cues. And then what I'm calling interoceptive cues, which are similar to internal cues, except that I think my approach to teaching a class with an interoceptive focus is really kind of aimless in a sense that there is no discernible goal, but the goal is really the process of discovery. And so there are a lot of questions asked rather than directives given with interoceptive cueing. And then finally, what I'm calling cues that have very specific lexicons or that come from very specific lexicons. So the language, say, of anatomy or the language of Sanskrit or yoga philosophy terminology, Um, even, you know, very kind of uh, in-depth metaphors that can sometimes be used to teach a pose, like say using food metaphors or nature metaphors or dance metaphors, poetry, you know, any anything like that could be a very specific lexical choice as well. And so the, I guess we can start with internal external cues. Okay. Cause I've got, I've got quite a question about the, the last. Oh, one. great. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious if those are population specific, meaning like dance cues to dancers, or if they're more universal as in their memes, they're like, uh, something that we have a mutual with, you know, within our culture, we have a mutual understanding about what they mean. I think that they're, I think that they're population specific. I think that the the cues that draw heavily from specific lexicons are population specific in that, not that, not that they are exclusively understood by a population in that you run the risk of alienating certain populations by using this terminology, unless (laughs) that's a really important word, unless you've, you've presented it well, 
right? If you've presented it well, if you've translated it, if you've chosen it sparingly, um, if you've made it accessible, then I don't think you are at risk of alienating people. But I think it's all, as everything is, it's in how you present it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that I hope that answered your question. Yeah, yep, thank you. All right, let's jump into that first one. Yeah. All right, well, internal and external cues um, have been looked at very closely through research really to understand how um, directing attentional focus, which is the phrase that's often used, like how do we direct the person who's moving the attention in a way that um, more effectively yields the results we're looking for as the teacher. Uh, so I looked at, you know, a couple of different resources online to sort of you know, kind of understand a little bit of the findings of the research behind this, but, you know, you'd want to look at like people like Wolf, W-U-L-F, who's done a lot of research around motor learning. And um, a couple of other researchers cited were Marchant and Porter. So there's lots of, there's lots of solid uh, research around these two types of cues. Let me just tell you about the cue. So an external cue is a cue that communicates the relationship or helps the, the mover understand their relationship to space um, and or helps the learner understand how to move their body via task completion. This is so internal? there's an external focus. Oh, okay. External, external, external. There's an external focus. So it's either the external environment and the way my body relates to that external environment or a task that I'm trying to complete. And so the focus with the cue is really on task completion or on relating the body in some way to the environment that it's okay. in. I'll use bridge pose as an example, just to illustrate, like to, to really give an example of, of, of these types of cues. The other is internal cues, which um, highlights a part of the body specifically and perhaps the way that that part of the body relates to another part of the body or the feeling of a muscle contracting. And so really stays very much internal to the body itself and doesn't account for the environment the body's in or a task, completing a task. So, I mean, we could take, for example, as I said, the pose bridge and you know, I could just like give you an example of how these cues would maybe show up in, in bridge pose. Like if we were teaching bridge a specific way um, in both cases. So if you were to use internal cues for bridge, internal cues now. So really staying within the body itself to, to, to give the student a, sort of an idea of how to move. You might say something like lift your hips up in bridge. Engage your buttock muscles to extend your hips. Engage your adductor muscles to keep your knees over your heels. Okay, so let's say that's how we're teaching bridge. There's lots of ways to teach bridge. In, in all of those cues, there's like two or three cues, really, I'm really referencing the body itself. So knees over heels, engage the buttock muscles, engage the adductor muscles. Um, this type of cue has been found through research to, to, be, to not be as effective as the second type of cue, which is external cues, with regards to improving performance. So if you think of performance, maybe like in the context of athletics, like a long jumper. Let me give you an example, though, of um, 
first what an external cue would sound like in bridge, and then give you an example of what that might sound like to a long jumper. So we can kind of understand what this performance thing is all about, because I don't know if I, I really think about my performance in bridge pose as much when I'm doing bridge, but maybe if I were doing long jump, I would think about my performance, like how far am I jumping? Well, you might not, but there um, are plenty of people who, mm-hmm. who really think about how deep into wheel am I getting? Right? Like, am, am I achieving Natrajasana? Right? Am I achieving, yeah. you know, that one-legged back bend with your leg behind your head? Am I achieving yeah, and that, I think, in is, a teardrop shape, right? There's all these different levels. So, <laughs> so even though not all of us view yoga and asana in a performance-based way, there's definitely a subset of yoga practitioners or people who practice the same poses as we do and call it yoga who are very performance based mm-hmm. yeah and i think there could potentially be value in approaching asana in that way um but i think there can also be some major drawbacks as well it's a little bit of a what do you gain what do you lose type question when we look at um why why are people doing yoga um asana specifically uh, so with regards to the performance side of it, can we let's let's come back to that actually after we talk about external cues because I think it'll be I think it'll be very interesting to continue the conversation. <laughs> um, so external cues are cues that direct students' awareness to spatial relationship or task completion. That might sound like this in bridge pose. Drive your feet into the floor to lift your hips up toward the ceiling. Squeeze your thighs into a brick to engage your adductors. Um, You could even make it a task, like for example, kind of drive the floor away from you is a bit of a task, like move the floor down, squeeze the brick as a task. You You could take it a step further and say, squeeze the brick as though it's a sponge, squeeze water out of the brick or dent the brick. Um, you know, these these give you sort of a, a visual with regards to what you might be trying to do or affect to the envi- on the environment due to the due to the environment or effect in the environment with regards to the actions of bridge pose. So research shows that, for example, in the case of a long jumper, if you told a long jumper to extend their knee as quickly as possible, that the results would be um, not as good as if you told them to jump past a certain point that you've marked for them in the sand, jump past that point. You've made it a task involving some external aspect of the environment. And so they can run studies like this, you know, large sample size studies on like, you know, athletes giving them these two types of cues to see how, how it affects their performance. And they, and, and they found that, that actually external cues are more effective. I can, I can relate to that, Laurel. When I am, even just in my brain, when I imagine practicing bridge pose and I imagine simply Mm -hmm. trying to drive my hips up versus driving my hips up by pressing my feet into the floor, I know, because I've practiced Mm -hmm. a whole lot of times, I know that I'm going to be more embodied. Like I'm going to have like a, a fuller experience of the shape when I interact with the external environment. Now that's not to say that that's always the goal of my bridge pose. It, it might not be, mm-hmm. but I can definitely, um, I can, I can relate 
to the results of the research in like from my own experience, I can make that connection for sure. Yeah. You know, what's super fascinating about this from a more anatomy side of it is that actually external cues involve less muscle contraction. Hmm. In other words, fewer muscles are contracting and the muscles that are contracting generate more force, are able to generate more force. So it's almost as though external cues allow us to be more efficient so that we're not using more muscles than we actually need because that can actually slow down movement and it can create sort of impediment to efficient movement, but also that we're able to then harness more force from the muscles that we do need. And, and the distinction here today between moving from a voluntary control standpoint, in other words, trying to control our movement and overriding what might be the innate impulse that your body kind of naturally has toward this specific type of task completion, say like running and jumping versus allowing the movement to be autonomic and kind of in this sense, getting out of the way of the mechanics that your body already knows that you don't really even have to think about. I mean, think of how much of your day you actually spend thinking about how you're moving, probably very little, you know, well, you're going about you're a yoga day doing stuff. <laughs> I mean, unless you practice, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, but essentially, and so, and then, then, the, then the question is like, well, if, if we move more efficiently when we're not thinking about the, the way that our body is moving, but rather about the task, completing the task, then the question is like, is it even good to be focused so intently and heavily on how you're moving all the time is what that equates to is you kind of overriding the innate intelligence of your body to begin with. So that that's that's on the side of like external cues are, are, are the cues that are better side of it. Um, not that this has to be a like which is better than the other, but I think that it's it's important to understand that that's the reason why that's the theory behind why external cues are better. And then also the research sort of bears it out with regards to the performance standpoint. But, um, you know, many others see the value, including myself, in internal cues, which is that it, it helps students perhaps understand how their bodies work. And, and it, it invites a sort of in, a little bit more internal focus and a little bit more interoceptive stand, stand, uh, awareness on what, what's happening, where where those muscles are, what it feels like to engage them. I think that it's important though when you give internal cues, like for example, in bridge pose, engage your adductors, that you've actually pre-taught what that is, <laughs> um, where they are, what action, you know, what muscle action do the adductors create. Um, so, you know, additional teaching help might be important when teaching internal cues or teaching using internal cues. Um, and so then the question, you know, about whether or not we do asana for performance purposes would maybe help us better understand, like, why would we use external cues? Why would we use internal cues? You know, why might it be good to, to use both? Because for me personally, I find that my practice of asanas works best for me, giving me what I need when it invites me into an experience of myself, felt experience of myself, um, and, and actually away from a performance mindset. So, because I can be very performance oriented and I'm very 
kind of competitive and uh, a little bit of an overworker. So, so this idea of it being about task completion and that being the better way to queue, I don't know if that actually is entirely true for everybody with regards to yoga asana. Well, I think you said it best when you said that it, it really depends on your intention. And that's why I, I love to invite yoga teachers to get really clear on what it is they really, what's their core message? What is it that, that they would, if there was only one thing they could teach in their class, if there was only one thing experience, one piece of the experience they could get through, what is the most important? What is the core of what you're teaching? When you know that, yeah. that really helps you choose your language. And, you know, when, when you were describing your personal journey and experience with yoga asana, the word that comes to my mind, and, you know, you can tell me if, if you don't resonate with this word, but for me, it's about mindfulness. So it's about being present in my body and mm -hmm. it's not about performing, even though, of course, I have those mm -hmm. tendencies too sometimes. And I can, you know, I can... I think of it as it's like ego gets kind of caught up, especially if I'm in a group environment and everybody else is doing something or whatever. But ultimately, uh -huh. my intention for doing yoga asana is about is about regulating my nervous system through mindfulness. And so with that as the intention, then the cues that are going to be effective for that are are different. They change. Yeah, and I think the variety is maybe what we're going for too. So that we can, especially in a group class, we can reach as many of the people who have come to our class as possible. I call it casting a wide net, you know, and not limiting yourself to the temptation of dichotomous thinking, like this is a better way to cue than this, because it depends. Absolutely. Yeah. So the next, so you just covered internal and external cues and you started to kind of dive into interoceptive yeah. cues and that's, that's the next one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the way that I would, the way that I think differently about internal versus interoceptive cues, and by the way, I've kind of made up the term interoceptive cues, is that for me, in the experiences I've had in Classes, maybe more along the lines of restorative yoga classes or yoga nidra classes or Feldenkrais classes, is that when I leave those classes feeling the way that I do, I sense that it, it is in large part because of how I was guided by the instructor to think of myself in the class. So that rather than being coached, or even taught how to do something. I'm really kind of taken on a journey into myself and the teacher's less of a coach, less of a teacher, really more of a guide. So with regards to interoceptive cues, I think the distinguishing characteristic might be that there are a lot of questions asked by the teacher rather than directives given. Mm. And that there appears to be no right answer and really no discernible goal, which is really hard for some people. So I think it's important to take into account that some people come to class kind of wanting to do and accomplish and be coached, and be taught. And so it might be difficult then for students who have those expectations. But I can, I can give you an example in Bridgepost. So let's say, let's say it sounds a little bit more like, like this. 
So press into the, so you can start with um, the focus on the feet. Press into the floor through your feet and feel where do your feet make the deepest footprint into the floor. Now, can you distribute the weight to even out the footprint across the edges of your feet? And when you do that, where do you feel now the effort in your legs? Has it changed? Do you feel it more in your quads? Do you feel it more in your hamstrings? Fronts of the thighs, the backs of the thighs. Now, what happens when you attempt to pull the floor towards you with your feet? Where do you feel it now? So. There's a, there's a little bit of internal and external cueing happen, happening there, but it's happening through a process maybe more of inquiry rather than task completion, shape completion. You know, and students might be having an experience of discovery. On one hand, some students might be like, oh, interesting, when I do this, this is what happens, and when I do this, this is what happens. And other students might be thinking, what are we actually, what am I supposed to do? Right. What's the goal? <laughs> I'm, def I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely in the first category. I'm a little bit more of, um, I like ambiguity. <laughs> I sort of like it when it's left up to me to sort of decide. But I don't know that I would have liked that early on in my yoga practice. In fact, I think I w it would have turned me off. But I'm at a place now, like 15, 15, 16 years into my yoga practice, where I'm like, stop telling me what to do. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> And you know? if, uh, if so. listeners are intrigued by these, these ways of describing cues, uh, I would also invite you to go and listen to episode 13 with Christine Coveri Weber. Her episode is called The Slow Yoga Revolution. And she also talks about three types of cueing. She uses slightly different language and slightly different descriptions, but it, I think it would be helpful to hear that perspective as well. And also there's a download mm -hmm. associated with that. If you're on my email list, you have access to a whole bunch of downloads that are, some episodes have, you know, extra information attached to them. And so hers does, hers has this, uh, like a chart about her, her categorization of interoceptive, extraoceptive, and proprioceptive cues, but she does cool. not have the, the, the fourth category that you have. So I'd, <laughs> yeah, I also want to say that all of these cues can kind of coexist or, or live in the same, you know, live in dual categories. Um, so the, the fourth type is choosing language um, from a very specific lexicon. So if you are of an anatomy bent, you might speak Latin and use words like, I just did actually quadriceps and hamstrings, which, you know, hamstrings isn't, isn't Latin. But, um, <laughs> but using, using terminology that is foreign sounding to people who haven't studied the body. And the same goes with Sanskrit and the same goes with words that um, come from yoga philosophy. Uh, and the same goes really with maybe a, a kind of more in-depth metaphor around a certain, you know, describing a certain type of moving, move, movement, maybe using a metaphor of, of the ocean or of nature, 
in general, or maybe of dance or food even. So I think that um, what you gain from using specialized language in this way is potentially um, inviting students into a, a type of insight that they might be otherwise unable to have without that language. So for example, when I learned the language of anatomy or I'm still learning the language of anatomy, when I started learning the language of anatomy, I was able to think about the body in a completely different way because I suddenly had language to use to think about the body in a completely different way. I mean, really language, I think, opens the doors for us to even have ideas about things because we think in words. And I mean, not everybody thinks in words, but most of us do actually. And so when we don't have words for something, it's almost like it doesn't exist. We can't, we can't even talk about it. I couldn't talk about my, my, my acetabular labrum until I knew what that was. I, and when I talk about my acetabular labrum, I'm still not really sure what I'm talking about because I've never seen it. So <laughs> I've just been told it's there. Um, but anyway, I hope you understand what I'm saying. So there are benefits to, in effect, using these these terms, but um, the drawbacks are potentially that we alienate people if we don't present the terms in a way that is accessible, um, in, a way, in a way that they can actually benefit from hearing it and maybe even walk out of the class being able to use it. So, for example, I've had many students tell me that they really don't like it when the teacher uses anatomical language while teaching yoga because they find that it, it creates such a, a barrier for them. And I've had other students say the opposite, say like, I, I really don't like it when the teacher can't back up what they're saying with anatomical context, or it sounds as though what the teacher is saying has no relationship to, Anatomy. you know, what is potentially actually happening, right? So I think that knowing your audience is extremely important when you're making these choices. Um, extremely important. So if you're going to use, for example, you know, I, I like to a lot of times use metaphors that are based on, on New York City. And like, so for example, the grid of Manhattan and the subway system, and that wouldn't work if I'm teaching in Georgia necessarily. So unless I, unless I contextualize it, unless I tell them a little bit about New York and about what it's like there and then use it, right? Or um, same thing goes with like using the word, uh, you know, plantar flexion or flexion of the ankle. I'm probably not just going to spit that out, even in my classes where maybe 50 to 60% of the students are regulars and they've heard me say those words before. They've heard me define those words before because inevitably there's going to be a couple, at least a couple students in the class who have no idea what that means. And so then the idea that, you know, they should have known what that meant or they, or, you know, maybe this is too complicated for me might enter their head or I guess this isn't, um, you know, maybe this class is, is just not the right class for me. You know, we've all kind of probably felt like we're not in the right place because of the language, the language that's being used. I just don't even know what these people are talking about. I'm going to go find something else to do so that I can feel like I can keep up. I definitely don't want students to have that experience. It's important that like, if you do use this language, whatever it is that you, I think that you contextualize it and that you actually become a language teacher in a sense and explain the word means, um, give students a direct experience of the word, and then use it more than once. Because if you're going to use it, you're going to use it. And that's why I think it's also important that we kind of carefully select 
what language we are going to impart in a class because you don't want to introduce too many new words because that in and of itself is also very overwhelming and not an effective way to teach language. Yeah. And, you know, depending on what, again, the intention of the class, if you're maybe in a teacher training or a specific training for teachers where the goal is to learn a whole bunch of new language, it could be effective. <clears throat> but if the goal is mindfulness, mm -hmm. for example, I know mm -hmm. <laughs> my personal experience is that, yeah, a whole bunch of new words would, would really kind of put me into my brain and take me out of my body. Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing too, is like what kind of, yeah, exactly. What kind of experience, right? If you are, if you are teaching yoga to teachers and one of your, one of the learning objectives is that they acquire a type of language. Yes. But even then you have to actually be very selective about what language you use so that it's not overwhelming. You know, too much information is almost worse than none at all. <laughs> that is so good, Laurel. <laughs> I need to feel that. <laughs> I, I, think it, I think it is a little bit, right? I mean, it can be because it can actually create a feeling of defeat in students. Like, I just, I can't get this. I'm just not, I'm not enough to get this. Like something's wrong with me or this is a boring topic or whatever, you know? So I think that, yeah, even with teachers. And then, um, and that's going to be very different. Your your learning objective with teachers are going to be very different than your learning objective with your 6 p.m. stress out office worker group. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Um, so do you want to hear do you want to hear uh, me teach bridge with a very specific lexical choice? Yes. <laughs> I feel like examples are really important, you know. So we can really understand um, what are we talking about. So this is an example of, of um, I kind of chose like a beach nautical theme. I love it. This is, I'm really this excited. Is, yeah. Hopefully it's going to sound really cheesy, <laughs> but I want you to imagine that I am the kind of teacher that would be very, very good at teaching this way. I've, I've, I actually, my favorite teachers teach, teach in using language like this. Um, and I do sometimes too, but I, I would say I lean a little bit more toward the anatomical side. So here it goes. Sink your feet and arms down into the soft, squishy sand of the ground. Make deep foot and arm prints through the whole of the soles of the feet and the backs of the arms. Unfold the billowing sail of your chest. Allow it to puff up toward your face. Smooth out the fabric. So lift your hips up and smooth out the fabric of the front of the body, expanding the ocean of your abdomen. <laughs> For example, that was a, like a heavy, that was like a shot. Well, but it was like I a, made it like very a clear. double shot. <laughs> so maybe not like the whole pose taught that way, but you can see how you could select out perhaps one or two of those cues and mix it in with other Q types and how it would actually have a very different, it would impart a very different feeling. Mm -hmm. Your whole class could take on a narrative arc around a specific theme. And some teachers are just exceptional in using language in this way and to great effect. Absolutely. I think we've all, or at least probably most of us have had classes with teachers who do that. And we're not even quite sure, like, what is it they're doing? But we notice that whatever it is, it's yeah. really special. 
it's yoga magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's it's storytelling. I think yeah. ultimately, storytelling is an incredibly powerful way to reach people. So the other one um, would be maybe more of an anatomical lexicon. So extend your hips by engaging gluteus maximus. Couple that muscle contraction with a strong engagement of your adductors to prevent your thighs from externally rotating. Squeeze the brick. Using ground force reaction to extend the spine, press your feet down to lift your hips up, to lift your chest up. Notice how the more you ground down into your feet in the backs of the arms, the higher up your torso and pelvis lift. Ground down into the arms to extend your shoulders. Press down into your head to engage your cervical extensors. Very different experience of bridge pose. Yeah. It could be cool too. Now, if you just got done learning about all of these things, yeah, exactly. I'll often teach a pose this way after teaching, you know, an hour or so of anatomy. So that they can put the language with the experience, with maybe the felt experience of those muscles actually working or the joints actually working in those ways. To show them the connection between um, maybe yoga teacher language and the language of the body or the accepted language of the body used by anatomists and, you know, those Western medicine people. Yeah. And that's a, it's a great, you know, if, if that's an interest, if that's a, an area of passion, you know, I think it's really helpful to find ways of learning anatomy that we can relate to. And so when we, you know, this is something that I really appreciated when I, when I took yoga tune up, which is how you and I met originally was Uh the way that Jill related learning anatomy to what I was actually doing in my body in yoga. And so, because I was a yoga Mm -hmm. person, I felt it, it was so different from sitting in a classroom. It was so different from just memorizing and regurgitating these like really abstract names and concepts, but I could actually feel them happening in my mm-hmm. body. And I really, I really loved that. Exactly. And I think she actually makes that connection so well for people and shows them that anatomy is something that um, lives in you, you know, that, that, that what you look at in a book or in a a skeleton is the map, not the territory. Right. And that anatomy is, it really comes alive. It is alive in, in you. And so put the map down and just start to explore yourself because you're going to, you're going to be able to understand through embodiment, these concepts in a much, much more meaningful way if they're explored in that way. Absolutely. And, you know, whatever, whatever your focus is, in your teaching, you can find a language that is going to make it come alive. So I hope that, Mm -hmm. I hope that these, you know, breaking down these four different ways of thinking about cueing helps you listeners to, to do that. Laurel, do you have any, um, any final thoughts on this topic for today? I think that it's fun to have homework. Well, you know we're all about <laughs> I have homework. A suggestion. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I know you are. I actually have a suggestion 
for how to actually, you know, as we were just talking about, like anatomy is not in a book, it's in your body. And learning this is not in this podcast, it's in you. And so in order for you to really learn how to cue in different ways, you actually have to start practicing it, right? There's no shortcut. There's no way around it. So in order to start practicing this, some some ways that you could do that are to um, write down, you know, what you would say teaching bridge pose using external cues only, using internal cues only, using interoceptive cues only, using um, lexically specific cues only, and then um, maybe record yourself reading the the cues that you, you 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 know you've chosen for these specific categories. Practice the pose to them. Try them out on someone. Um, try blending them. Try writing, you know, what would you say if you incorporated all four types of cues? Then, you know, record yourself saying that. Do it, see how what that felt like. Um, and then maybe, you know, when you go teach your classes, if you're teaching classes, create sort of a goal for yourself. Like, I'm going to try to use... I'm going to try to use three external cues in this class, or I'm going to, I'm going to ask three questions that are sort of, you know, invitations for interoception. Um, I, that's at least how, how I, as a newer teacher, continued to train, or I remained a student of teaching, and I sort of continued my own self-led teacher training, was I would create, I would have goals, and I would kind of create, like, little miniature goals within a class to try to you know implement some of the skills that I was working on I love it let's see I mean just like see see what happens yeah yeah no I was the same way how did that land I'm the same way you know especially when oh yeah me too me too yeah 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 same same strategy, different different goals, maybe different skills, or maybe the same ones. Yeah. <laughs> so, Laurel, how can yeah. how can listeners find out more about you? Uh, you can go to well, I'm all over Instagram these days. It's my first and last name, Laurel Biebersdorf at Laurel Biebersdorf. I post every day, and it's usually something educational. Um, something that I'm really interested in. I only post things that I'm really interested in. So, and I will, because <laughs> that's how I stay interested in social media. And then also uh, my website, laurelbeaversdorf.com. I have a lot of content on my website, um, a lot of vlogs and blogs. Um, I have some really cool yoga with resistance band classes that I just launched that are at least now currently on sale. I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but. Uh, also, I'm on Facebook, but I think I'm much more active on Instagram. But you can find me on Facebook at Laurel Yoga. Awesome. Thank you. And I will put yeah. uh, a link to your website in the show notes so people can see how your name is spelled. <laughs> I know. Just type in Laurel Beaver's Dark. Right. It's easy. Sort no, of it's like Mado Hesselink. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. Oh, man. We get each other, don't we? We get each other. <laughs> In many levels. If you made it all the way here, thank you so much for listening all the way through. I know we did get a little nerdy in there, and that's not for everybody. But for the fellow yoga nerds out there, we love you. It has come to my attention recently <laughs> that I tend to overthink things. I've been working on this collaborative offering with a couple of other yoga teachers in town here, 
And I was not exactly stressing, but I was really putting a lot of thought into her promotional strategy and exactly how we were going to coordinate that between three people. Then one of my mentors pointed out that it's it, our, since our goal was 20 people for the whole thing, that's only seven people each, and we could probably fill that by sending a few emails and making a few <laughs> phone calls. And my mind was kind of blown. <laughs> It does not have to be so complicated. And I think we all need sometimes another perspective of somebody else reminding us of that. One of the benefits and also the drawbacks of being self-employed is that I get to spend a lot of time alone with my own thoughts. I sometimes spiral into a state of self-doubt and a state of overwhelm. And to help me with that, I have consciously sought out coaches, mentors, and business best friends to help me stay grounded and focused. I want to encourage you to do the same thing. If you're feeling stressed, confused, or anxious around your business, please reach out. Do you have a fellow yoga teacher that you could trade some time with? Or a senior teacher who knows you really well? I am happy to offer my support for free on the private Facebook group for this podcast. If you aren't a member, you can join by going to teachingyoga.net. Click the Join Our Community link on the top. Obviously, the support that I can offer in that format is limited. So if you want more in-depth support, please sign up for a strategy session with me. That can be done over video conferencing from anywhere in the world. Signing up for a strategy session is easy. Just go to teachingyoga.net and click work with me. That's another link up at the top. Helping yoga teachers overcome overwhelm, get focused, and design a business that they love is my zone of genius. I have never felt so in alignment and so energized by my work as when I'm coaching yoga teachers. As a yoga teacher yourself, you can understand, like that's saying a lot. Just teaching yoga is an incredible vocation. But for me, this one-on-one mentoring work is like taking that teaching, that yoga teaching to the next level. And I recently had this realization that this this is an extension and an evolution of teaching yoga for me. When I coach yoga teachers, we are using yogic principles and we're applying them to your business and your life. It's so effective and so nourishing because it's about clearing up the places where your values might be in conflict with each other and making conscious choices around embodying the values that you're going to choose to focus on more fully. You can make a lot of progress with this on your own. I do a lot of you know, self-coaching for myself, but eventually I believe everyone needs some help finding their own blind spots. When you're ready to reach out for that help, of course I hope you'll reach out to me, but whether it's me or somebody else, please do reach out. That is all for this week. I hope it is a wonderful week for you where you push your edges a little bit Step outside your comfort zone and experience your incredible life to the fullest. While you're doing that, please remember to make time for your personal practice. I will see you next week.